Well, if we haven't met before, uh, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here at Halifax Christian Church. Now, when I was in grade 7, uh, starting in grade 7 and all the way through grade 12, I was in French immersion. And the reason I went into French immersion was because I was told that if I was bilingual, I could write that on my university applications, my job applications, and it would work to my advantage. And I was like, you know what, I want an advantage in life, that sounds good. And so I went through French immersion, and it went pretty good. Up until my first year of college, I, I started working part-time at Canadian Tire, worked in the sports department. And so one day, I'm, I'm just doing my thing in the sports department, and my manager comes up to me, and he hands me the phone. He says, you speak French, don't you? Oui. Well, I couldn't say no. I wrote it on my application. He had it there in paper. And so I, I pick up the phone, and, and I'm speaking to a woman who only speaks French, and she's asking about the options we have in my BC Vet exercise, and I'm sorry, I just probably slaughtered the French language. I don't claim to be bilingual. I won't go on any more applications. <laughs> but, but she's asking these questions, and I quickly realize, you know what, I didn't pay enough attention in class. And I realize there's a difference between school French and real-world French. Um, I just wasn't prepared. Now, in college, I also took a course in Greek. Um, and I will be perfectly honest, I loathed that class. Like, absolutely loathed that class. And I just didn't enjoy, um, well, much of it. I, not that I don't like the Greek language, not that I don't like the French language. I think they're actually both beautiful languages, but I'm just not very good at them. Um, there's so many rules that you need to memorize with these languages. So, so many. I understand the English language is just... Like, it's like, who needs rules? We don't care. But these languages, they have rules. It's like, whether something is masculine or feminine, that changes the whole sentence. If it's in the future or the uh, present or the passé composé, it changes everything. And so, I mean, I struggled with all the rules. I won't claim that I had memorized it. I got to like grade 12 and they're like, how did you get through this, like in French? And so I, I just, I didn't enjoy those languages because there were so many rules. But we live in a world where we have rules, don't we? There's rules how you drive your car on the road. If you play any sport, there's rules with that. There's rules in your home. There's rules in the schools. There's rules in the workplace. Rules are an aspect of everyday life that we have to deal with. Now, in Jesus' day, there were rules too. Surprise, surprise. Um, but there were religious teachers who absolutely loved to use rules as a way of governing how people lived their lives. Now, the Pharisees, teachers of the law, they loved God's word. Um, they, they loved to follow God's commands. And they took the commands of God very seriously. They saw warnings like Leviticus chapter 20, verse 8, that says this, Keep my directives and practice my commands, for I am the eternal who sanctifies you. Um, the NIV says this, keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. And so these Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they're like, I want to be holy. And so they did their best to keep God's commands, to follow the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. But they didn't want to even come close to breaking those Ten Commandments. So they were like, you know what, we're going to add some extra things here. So they came up with 240. 
48 extra commandments and 365 prohibitions, one for every day of the year, that would prevent them from even coming close to, to violating the Ten Commandments, from coming close to breaking any of God's commands. Now here's an example. The fourth of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10, this is what it says. Remember the Sabbath by keep day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And we're like, okay, clear enough, on Sabbath don't do any work. But they were like, what is work? What, what constitutes work? And they, they didn't want to even come close to doing any work on the Sabbath. And so they began coming up with rules to prevent themselves from doing this work. One rule was this. On the Sabbath day, you cannot travel any further than three quarters of a mile to get to the synagogue where you will pray and read scripture. Because you need to be able to get back. And if you travel any further than three quarters of a mile to get there, um, and three quarters of a mile back, you are working. I don't know why one and a half miles constitutes work, and not two, but, but they were less, less work. But their details got even more minuscule. Um, on the Sabbath, it was prohibited that you would spit on the ground. You, you just couldn't spit on the ground on Sabbath. Any other day of the week, go ahead. On Sabbath, no. Because this is their reasoning. If you spit on the ground, and your spit hits the ground, and it disturbs the earth, and it turns the earth a little bit, technically, you are tilling the earth. And if you are tilling the earth, technically, you are expending some effort and if you are expending effort, you are working on the Sabbath. So just don't spit on the ground. Common sense. Do you guys don't get that? So they had all of these rules. Now their intention was good, but the problem was that they elevated these man-made rules to the level of God's word. And so their man-made rules, their commands, became almost the equivalent of God's commands. And so basically, if you violated one of their rules, it was almost the same as if you were, you were committing a sin against God. And so, these religious teachers, they become extremely legalistic in how you were to live your life. Now, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were excellent in their ability to keep these commands, to follow the rules. But what it did was it caused kind of this sense of arrogance, this pride that developed within themselves, because they looked at other people and they're like, you're not able to keep the rules as well as I keep the rules. And so in their ability to put on a good performance morally and with, with following their commands, their prohibitions, they began to think, you know what, we deserve some recognition from other people. We deserve some praise for our good work. And even with God, they began to believe they had a sense of entitlement that because of their spectacular religious performance, God owed them something for doing such a good job. Now, this is the world Jesus came into. Jesus was a teacher of God's word as well, but he wasn't your typical teacher. He taught God's word, but he taught it with an authority, but yet in simple ways, one that, that, that drew people to him. And while Jesus was the most important man who's ever walked on the earth, he didn't act like that towards other people. He didn't belittle people. He didn't act arrogantly towards them. But instead, he would hang out with the people who were considered to be on the lowest rungs of society. 
He was hanging out with the tax collectors, the traitors of the Jewish nation. He was hanging out with prostitutes, people who were engaging in open, known sin. And while Jesus didn't condone it, he wasn't like, that's okay, keep doing it. He didn't condemn them. But instead, he offers hope. He offers forgiveness. He offers salvation. Now, not everybody was a fan of Jesus. That's pretty obvious. If you lived in our culture, you know that people nailed him to a cross. But one Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples, they're walking through a field. And as they're walking through the field, the, the disciples are like, you know what, we're a wee bit peckish. Um, we're kind of getting hungry. And so they're like, we're in a grain field. Let's eat some grain. We'll have some, some grain that will hold us over till dinner. And so they start pulling pieces of grain off this stem of the wheat. And they're just popping it in their mouth as they're going. And the Pharisees are there. And the Pharisees, they don't seem to have much better to do than follow Jesus around, ask him annoying questions, and try and trap him in, in different situations. And so they see their opportunity. They're like, Jesus, look at what your disciples are doing. They're pulling, they're pulling grain and putting it in their mouth. They're, they're harvesting grain on the Sabbath. What are you going to do about it? But Jesus doesn't react like they'd expect. He doesn't reprimand his disciples. He's not like, oh, you guys, you've embarrassed me in front of the Pharisees. What are you doing? Instead, he turns to the Pharisees and he's like, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of the Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, you know what? These commands, the command of the Sabbath, that was intended to serve man, not for man to serve the Sabbath. But the, the, the Pharisees keep following him around that same day. And this is what happens in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus left the field and went to the synagogue. And there he met a man with a shriveled hand. The Pharisees wanted to set up Jesus. The Pharisees said, Well, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath too? And Jesus said, Look, imagine that one of you has a sheep that falls into a ditch on the Sabbath. What would you do? To the Pharisees, he said, you would dive in and rescue your sheep. Now, what is more valuable, a person or a sheep? So what do you think? Should I heal this man on the Sabbath? Isn't it lawful to do good deeds on the Sabbath? And to the man with the shriveled hand, he said, stretch out your hand. And as the man did so, his hand was completely healed, as good as new. The Pharisees went and mapped out plans to destroy Jesus. And so in the eyes of the Pharisees, they don't get it. They don't understand Jesus. Jesus is, is saying, you know what, guys? You, you put yourself into slavery with these commands. These commands were intended to be for your good, but instead you're enslaving yourselves to them. He's showing the Pharisees, you know what? You don't fully understand God's law, the intent behind it. You don't understand how to apply God's word, his commands. But the Pharisees, they see Jesus as this reckless rabbi who has no respect, who has no regard for the commands of God. They, they, they seem to be oblivious to the fact that what Jesus says is backed up. It's backed up with miraculous power. It's backed up with lives changed. People's lives are changed dramatically when they encounter Jesus. But the Pharisees, they won't, re they won't repent of their legalistic ways. But so they're like, we've got to kill this guy. And so they start setting traps for him to try and put their plan into effect. In Luke chapter 10, we find one of these. Verse 25. A scholar of the Hebrew scriptures tried to trap Jesus. The scholar said, 
Teacher, what must I do to experience the eternal life? Jesus answered him with a question. What is written in the Hebrew Scriptures? How do you interpret their answer to your question? Well, you shall love. Love the eternal one, your God, with everything you have, all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, perfect. Your answer is correct. Follow these commands and you will live. Now, that, that teacher of the law, that lawyer, he's not satisfied with that. Because being a, a legal man, he wants to know, what is the definition of neighbor? Who am I legally obligated to serve by the law of God? I don't want to mess this up. And Jesus responds with the story of the Good Samaritan, where the, the man who is the least likely to be a neighbor is in fact the neighbor to that man. And what Jesus is showing is, is not asking, who is my neighbor? Who do I have to help? But Jesus is saying, look for the opportunity to be a neighbor. Look for that opportunity to show mercy and compassion, to show hope to other people, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they are. That is how you fulfill the command to love your neighbor. Now, when you look at Scripture, if you study it all, you see that Jesus isn't concerned that we fulfill or keep a religious checklist of do's and don'ts. Because these checklists of do's and don'ts, they often just lead to an external impression of holiness. But inwardly, you're concerned about keeping that list, of maintaining that list, of, of keeping score, whether or not you are good with God or not, based on how you are performing. And many of us have lived that way. It leads to exhaustion. It leads to stress and worry. And so Jesus gives an invitation to something that is different. In Matthew 11, Jesus says this, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Put my yoke upon your shoulders. It might appear heavy at first, but it is perfectly fitted to your curves. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. And when you are yoked to me, your weary souls will find rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And Jesus is giving an invitation to people. He's giving an invitation to those who are tired of the relentless rules that the Pharisees are placing on them. He's giving an invitation to those who are exhausted from trying to fulfill the legalistic demands of the law on their own by just leaving, leaving them tired and worn out. And so he gives them a, a, an offer. He says, you can find rest for your souls in me. I am the perfect and I am the final sacrifice for sin that satisfies the law of God that says sin deserves death. We call this grace, unmerited favor. Jesus does the work for us. He, he pays for our sin, even though we are the ones who sin. And grace is beautiful. And when you understand it, it is so attractive. But the problem is, as human beings, we have this love relationship with rules. We, we love rules. And if you don't believe me, play board games with people. Um, if I play board games with my wife's family, I guarantee you that through the course of the game, that rule book, that rule pamphlet is going to come out numerous times as you, you hit different scenarios and somebody's like, you can't do that. And break out the rule book. And so there's this debate. And even when it's clearly stated what the rule is, there will be a debate. There will be an 
argument as to how you interpret that rule. We love rules because they provide structure. They provide guidance for us, don't they? But the Apostle Paul, he saw that, that Christians, they could experience the grace of God one day, that, that Jesus had died to forgive them for their sins. But then the very next day, they run back to the law. They run to the law as a way of um, keeping score, whether or not they're going to be saved or not, as a way of guaranteeing their salvation, that if they do good with the law, God will, of course, give them salvation. And so the Galatian Christians believe that their salvation still rested on their ability to keep God's law. And so Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Christ has set us free. This means we are really free. I don't know what that is. We'll just ignore that. But this means that we are really free. Now hold on to your freedom and don't ever become slaves of the law again. And you might be like, you know what, I'm not in danger of becoming a slave of the law again because, well, I don't even know the Jewish law. I kind of only know the New Testament. I didn't even grow up in the church. Maybe you're like, I can name like one or two of the top ten commands, which is like, I think, do not murder and do not steal are in there, something like that. And so you're like, I'm not in danger of running to the law for salvation. Don't worry about me. But what Paul's getting at is be on guard against legalism, which says... You are saved because you've kept the rules. Now, we invent Christian rules. Uh, I mean, they might not be in writing. They are communicated, whether, whether it is just orally or through conduct. We've invented a Christian legalism through the years. Christian legalism has said Christians won't gamble. Christians won't even possess or touch a deck of cards. Christian legalism can say Christians should not dance because it's too provocative. And don't worry, there's no provocativeness when I dance. It's more like you'll feel ill. But a Christian would not go to the movies because of what they might be exposed to at the movies. A Christian shouldn't get a tattoo. A Christian should not use drugs or, or produce or sell or use tobacco, alcohol, any of those things. A Christian should not drink at all. This Christian legalism has said a Christian um, should not have sex outside of marriage. A Christian should not be caught with somebody who's a known sinner. And while I, I agree with what many of these things communicate and said, I mean, these are good things that Christians shouldn't do. The problem is, is they became a legalistic thing. Being a Christian became more about keeping certain rules like these and less about what Christ had done. So following the Christian rules is what was thought to make a person Christian, not Christ's sacrificial death. And so many people can fall into the trap, this trap that says that if you were following the rules well, God will love you, God will, God will like you, but if you mess up, if you don't keep these rules, if you don't live perfectly, God won't love you. That God, will, God might pull salvation away from you when your inability to live perfectly. And, and if you live like this, it leads to a couple of things. It leads to exhaustion, but it also leads to pride or self-confidence in your ability to save yourself. I'm a good person. God will let me into heaven for sure. Or it leads to 
despair or hopelessness because you're like, my life is so messed up, I have no hope. Who could save a wretch like me? Now, could you imagine if you lived your marriage like that? Can you imagine if you were like that with your, your brother or your sister or anybody? Where it's like, you know what, um, today I, I cooked supper and I did the laundry. My wife is going to love me today. Definitely. But the next day when she asked me to vacuum, maybe I forgot. I just didn't get around to doing it. And, and she's, she's getting home and I'm going, oh, she's going to hate me. She is going to hate me so much because I forgot to do the laundry. I don't know if our marriage is going to make it. I forgot to do the laundry. But then you're going, you know what, I'll make up for it. I'll, I'll earn her affection by washing her car tomorrow. And that should at least make us neutral, and then I'll build from there. No relationship would be good if it was like that, would it? But yet many of us live that way with God, that we will earn His affection. Without a true understanding of what Christ has done, though, without a true understanding of grace, there's no true faith. If the main idea conveyed is that Jesus has died, but you still have to follow these rules in order to be saved, the gospel was not properly shared. They missed the main point of the gospel. And the reason I'm saying all this, the reason I'm kind of nailing at this, is that many of us were taught a legalistic version of Christianity. Many of us live a legalistic version of Christianity that says Jesus died, but I've still got to play by the rules to be saved. We've got to be careful what we're following and what we're teaching to other people. Because we can teach that Christian means that you follow the rules and you, you see this list of character traits in Galatians 5 that says um, somebody who's a Christian should be loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, self-controlled, etc. We can take that list and say there's a list of moral or character traits I should have if I'm going to be a Christian. But it's not coming from the Holy Spirit. We're trying to manifest it within ourselves. And essentially what we're doing is saying, here, I've got some spiritual fruit that Christians are supposed to have. And we're trying to nail it onto people or staple it to people and say, look, it's a healthy Christian. But they're trying to manifest it. They are not producing that fruit. We teach that sometimes, that you've got to manifest that within yourself. And then you will be saved if you can do that, if, as long as you don't get drunk or, or, or sleep around or do all these other things, these rules that we make. I believe this is the reason a lot of people are disenfranchised with the church and with Christianity. Because they've been taught that Christianity is about following the rules. They've not been taught the true meaning of grace. They miss the beautiful truth that God died to save us while we were at our worst. While we were his enemies. The message that God wants to be in a relationship has been replaced with moral lessons and rules. And basically saying, you know what? You've got to pull your life together on your own. And so my hope is that you don't get rules, that you're not simply getting moral lessons here, but that you do get the gospel. My hope is that we are keeping things simple and biblical here in this church. And you will never find a long list of requirements or rules for our members. We don't ask anything from our members or attendees that God does not ask from you in Scripture. But what we do find from Scripture is that there's this expectation. 
In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says this, Everyone will know you as my followers if you demonstrate your love to others. There's this expectation that love is going to be the defining characteristic of a disciple. He does not say they will know you are my disciple when you play by the rules and, and you keep all the rules and you stay within the lines. And so our mission statement is love God, love people, serve the world. The reason it is, is first it's biblical. Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says the most important command, love God and love others. But the second thing is when we understand grace, when we fully understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, loving him and loving other people becomes so much easier. When we understand that God came into this world, and died for us when we were at our worst. That we had rebelled against his law. That we had failed to keep it fully. It meant that we were destined for death, destined for hell. But God became his creation and came into his creation and died at the hands of his creation to redeem his creation. Jesus Christ took on the full weight of our sin on the cross. And he died as that perfect and final sacrifice for sin that fully satisfies the law. But he did stay in the grave. He rose again. He shows that God has power over death and anybody who believes in him, but believes in the resurrection will share in that as well. That there is no longer any condemnation for those who call Jesus Lord and Savior because Jesus has fully done the work for us. That is the gospel. And when you understand the gospel, again, loving God is so much easier. When we understand what Christ has done for us and his love for us, it's easier to share that love with other people. And loving God and loving people, the whole Christian life becomes much simpler. Because it's no longer, here's the Christian rule book, memorize it, and make sure you follow it completely. That leads to exhaustion. But what it is, is asking in every situation, what is going to bring God the most glory? What is going to love this person the most? And so Jesus hands you a playbook with two very simple commands in it. Love God, love others. And when you actually fulfill those two commands, you fulfill the entire intent of the law, which was intended to bring you into good relationship with God and a good relationship with other people. So my hope is this morning that if you take one thing away from this entire message, this is what I want it to be. You might be putting legalistic demands on yourself or on other people that God is not requiring. You may be thinking that you're going to get a bad performance review on the day of judgment when Christ returns because you haven't kept those Christian rules or the law perfectly. You have to understand that Christ has fulfilled the law for you. When he said it is finished, he meant it is finished. When he says you are free, he means you are free from condemnation for your sin. You are free to do the good works that God has prepared you to do. But you still may feel, I need to do good in order to earn God's approval, in order to earn God's affection. I have to do this. Understand that you cannot earn what has already been given to you. So this is an invitation. We, we give this invitation every week. But 
If you need to talk about who Jesus is, if you need to talk about just struggles you might be having with legalism in your own Christian life, the pastors are always available after the service, and we would love to talk to you more. But this is an invitation to get off the religious treadmill that says, perform, 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 and God will love you and you will get salvation. It's an invitation to get off that treadmill. It's an invitation to find rest for your soul in what Christ has done. Let's pray.